Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1034 with Nick Kenner. If I only had this one person, and wait a second, if I had one person supply chain at this point who is making 70 to 80,000 a year, do I think they could save the company more than twice that? Yes. Um, so it's their investments. People are investments. And we started to make those investments because as you get bigger, it's easier to have those investments pay off, right? You have one person in supply chain overseeing one store. Well, that's not going to pay for itself. <laughs> are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and your labor costs in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time creating great guest experience. Experiences. Head to marginedge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's marginedge.com slash unstoppable. This episode made possible by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's Total Oil Management automates your entire cooking oil process. With Total Oil Management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, use cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal, storage, collection, and recycling conveniently, safely, and cleanly with no upfront cost. Restaurant Technologies, Inc. is always on, so you don't have to be. To learn more, head to rti-inc.com and let them know Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast sent you their way. This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, 
cheese and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder and CEO of Just Salad, Nick Kenner, my man, Nick, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling unstoppable, man. Dude, I'm psyched to have you here. I'm really trying to move in a direction where my guests that I'm interviewing kind of steer the direction of Restaurant Unstoppable, and my guests have been talking about Just Salad, and uh, just recently, Stephen Solom uh, was our most recent guest. He called you out specifically by name. We also had Adriel Labarski on the show, episode 10. Oh, sorry, 1026, who talked about what you're doing just in your efforts to be more sustainable. And to Both be are like, green. this guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, everyone loves you. And yeah. like, honestly, Just Salad has been on my radar for a while now, and I'm excited to have you here. I cannot wait to dive into who you are and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, yeah, I mean, our, our mission is, is our mantra, which is to make everyday health and sustainability possible love that man uh and that was your your mission statement from 2006 on honestly we didn't have a mission statement oh, when really? we started our, our mission statement was to survive um <laughs> no i i think um, all right <laughs> it, it, it it was our mission without being an actual statement is what i would say but it, it was codified as an actual mission statement i don't know probably six seven years ago got it Wow. I, mean, yeah. I love that. I mean, sometimes I feel like these restaurants that get started, if you're getting started today, we compare ourselves to these organizations yeah. that have had time to find their identity and to crystallize their message and really get it out there. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I don't even have a mission statement yet, and you're like three or four years into this. Yeah it's never too late to start one, but like, you know, what's going through your mind? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily natural sometimes right. to have, um, uh, everything formalized from day one. Um, and things change over time too. Things change. I mean, and also when when I started, it was um, 2006. The restaurant industry was not even close to being um, as professionalized as it is today. I always joke, like I don't think we might have lasted a few months had we started the way we did then. Now, oh, in terms of like COVID or no, more like. Um, the competition and the execution is much right better now, honestly, right. than it was. In- I 100% agree with that statement. And I say it all the time. Starting a restaurant today isn't the same as what it was five years ago, even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the Less industry. forgiving. Right. Because um, there are other places that are doing it so well right. overall. Right. Um, like the Just Salad in 06 could not even come close and that's what we're here to yeah. talk about today is the evolution of just yeah. salad and your evolution as an, as an entrepreneur. And I, I mean, you came, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like basically straight out of college. Yeah. I mean, I had been working in finance for about two or three years and, um, I was working on a trading floor in Midtown, New York. Um, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to dive into the kind of evolution right. of how, how it started. Or... Well, I saw that you went to Colgate. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So graduate yeah. from Colgate. Yeah. Um, I was 03. 03, yeah. What'd you go to school for? Uh, I went for, what did I go to school for? Uh, drinking and, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me too. Um, no, I I mean, I, I, uh, I studied international relations and political science, and I loved to learn, but I really didn't have this um, 
I didn't know what I wanted to do during college. Right. I don't you know? think most people do. Like what yeah. 18 year old has a clue? I was always jealous. Yeah. I mean, and those people had very, it was like, I, I, you know, I want to study um, the biology of the ocean or um, I, you know, I want to be a doctor. Um, but most people did, did not. Right. Have a have a set path, and I was one of them. Yeah, uh, I think that's most people. So, like, what? So, at what point in your journey, you're like, I want to do restaurants. Like, when did that come into frame? Yeah. So, uh, I had been working in finance for about three years, um, and I was a you know junior associate at that point. Um, had a decent job at that point. I was actually. Um, uh, the trading, uh, the head trader for our macroeconomic desk, which was one person. Okay. And I was one person, but he was managing a lot of money and I was doing everything for the guy. And, um, it, it was great exposure. Um, but I just didn't see myself wanting to do that for 10, 20, 30 right. years. Exposure to what? Everything to do with wall street. So people that I, that I worked for, that's where I ended up on the macroeconomic desk. But like I was for six months, um, I was sitting next to the retail portfolio manager and working with him. I worked on the secondary desk to understand how uh, IPOs and follow-ons got uh, done. Um, I worked you know, for uh, the bond trader. I kept getting exposure to different parts of finance that I find myself even today, um, I'm more as it relates to just salad more and more, I quickly understand things a little bit more because I can kind of put it together from all these different perspectives from finance. So you had a political science degree. Yep. You get into finance. Yep. You're getting a, this big picture world of how money moves essentially. Yep. Um, and you go from there to doing a salad pop-up. Yeah. Or I don't know if it was a pop-up. Is that, is that the term you would use? No, I mean, I, yeah. So I, it came my turn for the entire trading desk to order lunch for people that day. Okay. And there were 50 people on this trading floor. And mind you, my mindset at this point is how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this with starting my own thing? Get out of the world finance. of finance. I'm, I'm just like, three you know, years in, three years done. in, I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is probably not for me. What made you think that? Um, I was waking up at about, 5:45 in the morning and you know kind of grinding until 6ish p.m. and I just didn't feel like I had a lot in me at the end of the day and my weekends were uh very fun but I kind of dreaded Mondays and um I just felt like I didn't want to do that for a big portion of my life um and I, w I felt like I wanted to make my imprint on this world and this wasn't going to be for me. Got it. Got it. So you order salad one day. Yeah. What happens inside? Well, it wasn't just for me. It was ordering for 50 people wanted basically salad. Okay. So like I, I'm taking the order for everyone on the desk, putting it into seamless web, which had just kind of taken off the ground at that point, Yep. Uh, which was pretty much the first mover in the entire third uh, party marketplace world. Right. And this is in New York. You were in New York. Yeah. Midtown. And there wasn't any salad place, That's right? Crazy. None of, none of, um, we had no, there, none of our competitors today were in Midtown, right? There was nothing. It was like a whole barren landscape. 
Um, and so I found myself ordering salads from a place called Hale and Hardy. That's primarily was primarily a soup place. And the salads weren't great. Um, and so I came back that night and, um, I, I talked to my roommate who was also in finance. I said, do you guys order salads at lunch? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, does everyone like men, women, old, young? He's like, yeah, everyone wants a salad. I was like, do you think if someone just did salad and did it really well, um, you know, there'd be a marketplace for that. And he was like, yeah, that's genius. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like if someone just did salad, just salad. And he was like, yeah, no, we should do that. And I was like, ah, what do you think the name would be? Just, just salad. Like it's a little cheesy. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's, he was like a hype man, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I actually still feel the name. I have uh positive and negative feelings. I think it's a name. great name because there's no confusion uh, as to what you're there for. Well, it, it is a lie now, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yes, it is. It, it's, uh, it didn't start off as a lie. It, it started off being accurate, but, um, no, you're right. When we open up, people know, um, what we do very quickly. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, this is 2006. So this is like, you're saying none of my competitors were in New York yet. So at this point, what we're talking like tender greens, Basically, Tender Greens. I don't or, think because Tender Greens was West Coast. I don't think they were started at that point. And they weren't just salads either. They were they were doing proteins and stuff like that too. Or yeah, like, I don't think they existed in 06. Okay, um, I know they were like late 2000s something like or it was around. Was it 2002 or 12? I mean that they started bubbling up. I there had was, them on the show. There was a know. place called Tossed, which had two units. Okay, um, one in Rockefeller Center and one on. Um, 22nd and Park South. They, um, after being a salad historian, right, besides Salad Works, which is like the OG OG, yeah. then there was this place called Toss, and then Chopped, um, which is a competitor of ours, had one in Union Square, but nothing in Midtown. And this wasn't the age of perfect information. So, And Sweet Greens didn't exist. Right. And there were no copycats of all, all of these right. places. Um, so if you're in Midtown in 2000, um, two to 2006, which was the time I was in Midtown working. And right when we started just out, there was no competitor. So as a result, when we opened our first uh, restaurant uh, at 320 Park at 51st and Park Avenue, the line was out the door down the block from day one. That's crazy. Just on the name alone. That's wild. Yeah, that's wild. So you definitely had something. But going into this before, like... Before you actually opened up, like what were the things, what were your challenges? Take us to the beginning of a, you kind of took us to the beginning of the idea of the inception, but like, what did you do to get to that point to where you could open with no background in restaurants? I mean, this was a kind of a good time. The economy hadn't quite tanked yet. Yep. 2006, we're rolling pretty good, but get into it. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess it first started, I wrote um, a business plan essentially for myself um, and I laid out what my margins were going to be, um, how we were going to get the produce, um, what type of rent we should be paying. Um, looking back, um, I think it was a worthwhile time only because it got me 
look, I, I had no restaurant experience, so it got me a little bit thinking about the right things. But the second we opened, the business plan obviously went in, in the garbage. So uh, at that point, it was really write a business plan. Most of the investors were the people that worked with me. Well, I was going to yeah. say, you kind of had a good network of people to get money. Yeah. All, all these people on the trading floor, not all, a lot of them between me and my business partner, we were able to raise about 275000 each. Wow. So 500000 Yeah. A little over five fifty. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, so get into the, that was actually one thing I, I wanted to touch on is how to raise money because yeah. with a finance background, I'm assuming you have some good advice there. So if you aren't friends with a bunch of investors, what advice do you have for raising money? Well, I think you got to know what your limits are of what's possible within your own network. Like I had actually before just salad, there were other, like I said, I wanted to start other things. So, um, my co-founder and I, we had wanted to start a rental storage facility in college towns because we thought, you know, that was a really good entrepreneurial idea at that time. And um, we put, uh, you know, a, a, a small business plan together and realized pretty quickly we needed to raise like three or four million dollars. Right. And we just didn't have that ability within our network and at that age to do yeah. that. Um, so we kind of realized like we probably can raise maybe half a million two million dollars just from like the people we know um and yeah we were lucky enough that what we were raising capital for touched everyone that we knew so they were like yeah of course this is gonna work i didn't have to sell them on it there was already a pain point that they were experiencing they couldn't get just salad correct yeah yeah so you you try to get the salad. You identify the pain point. You say, this is an opportunity. Other people that you're working with had the same pain point, And that's what you use to basically sell them on the idea. Yes. I mean, uh, yes, but honestly, we didn't, I, I've never been a great, um, salesman or capital, uh, raiser. I mean, we, we've, for someone in our, um, it's been around for 17 years in, um, as successful as we've been from a business perspective, I've, I've, done a horrible job at, at raising capital, but it's actually been a blessing because I haven't raised a lot. So you why know, is that a blessing? I'm not diluted down to 2% yeah. and I still control um, the board and control the company. And I still own a lot of my company. Do you think you would have gotten the financing if you didn't have friends in the space? <sighs> I'm, it's a weird question in my situation because I'm just not sure I would have done what I did. Um, but had I, yeah, I, if look, if I had a passion for a high end hamburger place at that point, I don't think I would have gotten the fundraising. Right. Well, the- and rightfully so, because uh, who am I to be, you know, I don't have a culinary background. Right. Um, well, that's kind of what's going through my mind, even with salads, like you need a little bit more of a culinary. like, I mean, you need any kind of food and beverage background typically to get money to go start a venture. And from day day one though, we were partnering with the nutritionist and registered dietitian who was our, um, you know, third partner at that point in the beginning. Okay. So, so you have this idea from this pain point that you experienced to do just salad. Uh, you have your business partner who's like the hype man. Like, do we mention his name? Yeah. Rob, Rob Crosby. Okay. Rob. Um, and then you, at what point do you think we need a third person? Oh, pretty early on, we realized we needed someone um, with credibility um, yeah. and 
um, culinary know-how. So it was part part of the business plan. Got it. Um, and did you was this person in your network already, or did you have to go find this person? Um, found this person in the network. So I had spent a lot of time um, going to upstate New York to the Hudson Valley. And there was a restaurant called Gigi Trattoria in Rhinebeck that I really liked. And every time I'd go to the bathroom there, I saw on the wall all these plaques uh, that the chef, Laura Pensiero, had with, um, you know, uh, being written up in Oprah Magazine or Martha Stewart or uh, whatever. And she, um, she was an amazing, or she is an amazing chef and has, um, a great culinary background. She also just has a good brand and presence herself. And she was not too big that she was going to charge an arm and a leg and, um, but big enough to have some credibility. So she was kind of like the perfect size for partner at that point. Um, you you mentioned her name, but I think I missed it. I'm sorry. uh, Laura Pensiero. Got it. Thank you. Uh, so first it's you and Rob. Yeah. And you said, we need somebody with culinary chops who knows the wellness vertical as well um and that's how you find laura because like like you said she was kind of getting established she wasn't quite there yet she was within reach correct yep uh so how long so what what came first raising of the money or building the team they kind of happens um simultaneously so it was putting the business plan together getting her on board with the caveat of course we have to raise the money right how did you get her on board because you didn't really know her did you uh i had been to a restaurant um i had met her once which i'm not i don't remember if she remembered me or not um but i went into a restaurant i showed her the business plan i pitched her on it and um i i had a conversation with her about whether she thought she would be the right person to help at first she was like i'm just not sure i have the time and i kept pressing and i kept kind of keeping her up on the progress oh we found a great site and uh looks like we're almost more than halfway there on the money um and at some point she's like okay I'm, I'm in and and there was no money exchange it was um um small percentage of the company from day one and um yeah, she was in, and 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 it was we would not have been able to get off the ground without her. Did you get coaching on how to structure that organizational, like what percentage each person gets? Like, what advice do you have on that? Because I think a lot of people get in trouble here. Yeah, that that's a good good point. I mean, lo- both my co-founder and I had dads that had been in business successful for a long time, so there was their input. You know, from a contract perspective, there was our lawyers. Input and then there was, um, I think both of us like had a tendency growing up to just try and keep um, older successful people in our network to just like lean on, yeah. And it was just like calling some of those people and kind of bouncing ideas off of them. Yeah. So you said that you gave her a small percent. I don't need you to share percent actual percentages, but is that like, did you have like a, so you have your income account, right? Cash is coming in from that income. Was there owner's pay or profit? Like how did you guys structure things? So LLC got it. And, um, in the beginning there were two classes of stock, uh, one for the three founders and then another for angel investors. And so three class of stock, two classes, two classes. Thank you. And one with voting rights, one that had zero voting rights, which were the angels. And um, we 
basically uh, divvied up the uh, between me, my founding partner, and and our and the chef. Um, and w- there was no money coming out of the business. Mm-hmm. There still is no money coming out of the business. Everything is reinvested to open up more locations. Got it. So you have. This is some good stuff that I never got. You said two classes of stock, one class for voting, one class non-voting, but essentially just cash flow. Uh, so um, basically, if you're coming into the voting, you're probably sweat equity, I would imagine, like you're or putting in a lot of money where you have more. We risk. put up no money. We didn't have any money. You didn't have Re- any money. Yeah. Any money we had was being used towards um, paying rent while we weren't having income yeah. in between um, leaving, the, you know, the jobs and finance and starting starting this. Okay, so is that the the five hundred and fifty thousand that you you raised was going towards all towards the construction of the first location. Wow. So you didn't have any operating capital once you were open. You basically the cash that was coming in from day one kept you guys going. Correct. Well, good thing you had a line out the door. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I'm thinking about too is with salad. The other the other benefits. Well, one, you're doing one thing really well. I'm a huge evangelist for that idea of just staying in your lane, be the best at one thing yep. and own that one thing. Uh, but I feel like with salads, you probably didn't have that much overhead. You don't really need equipment for salads. Yeah. It, the, you don't need, um, a hood and a fire suppression system. Um, however, there are a tremendous amount of skews. So, and fresh product. So there are like, if you look at a Chipotle, I don't know, it's probably 25, 30 SKUs. We have three times that amount. Um, so there, there are a lot of different types of products we're bringing in um, and combinations that you have for your, for your salad. So when you're saying SKUs, you're talking about ingredients. Yeah. Got it. Well, but yes, yes. So um, with the, the nature of what you're doing, you have a lot of different types of ingredients coming together. Uh, why is that a challenge? Some more things you have to... <laughs> Um, bring in from a supply chain perspective to a make sure you have supply of ample yep. supply, and then it's just different things that you have to train to prep, and different things that you have to find um, a place for on the um, topping assembly line, and um, different things that you have to make sure you're holding at the proper temperature, um, and just different things that you have to make sure you don't run out of for the customer. Right. So it, it, the more. More ingredients, more problems, you know? Right. So a lot of raw goods. A lot um, of raw. So... I mean, it, the way it started, right. a lot of raw. Now, it's a whole other story, but the way it's evolved, I would say a third of our menu's hot. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, so take us back to just before opening. Like, what were the challenges? Like, what were the roadblocks that you came across during the first... How long from when you have this idea to when you actually open? About... Um, about eight or nine months. Oh, wow. It's pretty quick. Pretty quick. From raising capital, finding location, finding partners to opening day, eight or nine months. Yeah. Wow. And um, yeah, so we wrote the business plan, found our our, our chef partner, and then um, it was like, okay, we got to find a real estate broker to find um, a site. And then we've got to get a architect lined up that can help us design this that was i'll never forget that was literally googling um chipotle and jamba juice architect two concepts that were fast casual in new york city at that point that i thought had their um shit together for lack of better words and uh 
up came New York Design, um, which was a New York City architectural firm that they worked with at that time. And then I called the uh, the founder Giuseppe Anzalone and uh, pitched him what I was doing. Um, and it really is pitching at that point. It's not like, hey, I want to give you work. Right. It's like, hey, will you work with me? Right. Um, and he was very helpful. He was like, look, uh, I'm happy to do this. And these are the um, general contractors. I see all the uh, fast food and fast casual people using. Um, and so then from there, I had my contractors to bid out. I had uh, my architect. And eventually, uh, we found the actual location. Um, I think one wrench that in the Joe Salad story that others probably didn't deal with is while we were testing um, our products from a culinary perspective in the disposable um, packaging, I became um, like pretty turned off at the amount of waste we were creating and said, we're going to open with a reusable bowl. And that's where we're going to serve everything in and we're going to give, um, we're going to give customers something free to come back and reuse it interesting so was it the, was it just like the packaging waste that had you stressed out yeah i mean it- back then it was these clear plastic clamshell bowls that were pretty substantial yeah um like what do you mean you, by substance like what they were just way? big yeah it was like a lot of plastic a lot right um that i think is unique to the bowl and salad category right if you get a hamburger the the packaging associated with it isn't generally as substantial right but this was a lot it's usually a piece of paper yeah 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 um so you know you have those ketchup packets you're trying to be green but but your carbon footprint is greater than well maybe not because beef's carbon footprint is so big but the packaging packaging you're right food wise it's it's um it's it's very non-intensive but from a packaging perspective it's 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 very intensive right um so you didn't. So from day one, I, I mean, I, the reusable is a huge part of your story. I think it's a unique selling proposition. Yeah, if I was uh, a better storyteller, I'd be like, you know, I, I well, I knew I, that was I, had, a, I had a, I had a vision to uh, create a closed loop sustainable. Yeah, yeah. and I definitely want to unpackage that, but I feel like we're going to spend a lot of time there. So before we open yeah. that door, sure, sure. Um, you said you went to this designer, your architect, and he from there he kind of gave you a list of people that you could start working with. To yep. Generally, contract out. Did you end up working with this this designer, or did he just give you a bunch of information? No, no, we we yeah, he was our architect for I want to say the first ten projects wow. we did, ten nice. restaurants. So I mean, I think there's a lesson here to like like have somewhat of a budget. I'm, I'm I wouldn't be surprised if he took up a lot of your budget. I mean. I, $500,000. I mean, no, you know. not, not, I mean, um, and maybe he should have because <laughs> <laughs> the, sense that like we could have had a better, uh, designed, uh, restaurant. I mean, he, he wasn't, uh, he was an architect and engineer. So what he was really good at was, uh, creating construction documents for chains that already had their design. Right. So part of, I think his appeal is here's my opportunity as an artist to actually come up with the design instead of just taking it and regurgitating it. it and putting and fitting it into these spaces in, in New York City. I mean, where I was going with the original train of thought is like just going to people who do what they do, right? And not being afraid because you might not have in the back of your mind, you might be thinking, I can't afford this person. But 
can you afford to go and try to do everything on your own and then not do it right the first time because you're cutting corners trying to save money? And then he opens you up to this network of other experts that can come in and help expedite the process and tell you what you're not aware of, especially if it's your first time out. Like there's just things that you would never know until you know. And finding the right team that contracting this out is huge. Yeah, it, it's a fine line. It, I agree with you 100%. If I had to ever do this all over again, um, I think paying up for expertise is usually worth it, but not always. I mean, it's a fine line. Like there are, I remember being pitched by hucksters also that um, I say hucksters because there, there were some firms that wanted to do it all. The leasing, um, the construction, the arc, and they charge an arm and a leg. And I've seen concepts that they work with uh, it just didn't work out and I don't necessarily like part of it was they, they sucked a lot of cost yeah. um, out of those companies. So, you know, it's a, a lot of it of being an entrepreneur is like this feel that's hard to describe. Well, it's just reading people and like, I think we, we give off an energy, you know, and I think some people are more receptive to that than others and they can just got, they get this gut feeling. I mean, they say, don't just always trust your gut, but at the same time, there's something going on there, Yeah, you know? Uh, so you open you had so with five hundred and fifty thousand dollars um you open after eight to nine months of from idea to ex, like actually doors open yep um I mean were there like any really tough times before we talk about actually opening like like what were like the biggest challenges that you pre opening yeah uh, i would I would say the biggest thing was we couldn't find um a lease or or a space that we liked. Really? So it almost, it almost didn't happen. There was a point where, um, I turned to my co-founder and said, "Like, I don't think we're going to find anything affordable to open," because at that point we were like, we could only do three or four hundred salads a day. Okay, was our estimate, and all these leases are like. 20,000 a month. Manhattan was red hot rent back then. And um, right as we were about to give up, we were literally shown um, a former women's shoe store in Midtown that was a thousand square feet. Very small. I mean, our average store is twice as big now. And we're like, okay, we can afford this one. And it, and it was like kind of like um, Maine on Maine for Midtown office. Got it. Was this was the space speaking to you, or was it kind of just like your the like, location was okay. speaking to me? The location was like this is exactly where we need to be, and I I knew when I looked at the location, I was like there was not even a question that people were going to be lining up for what we were doing. Was this another gut feeling, or were you looking at like hard variables? It, it, it was a gut feeling based on me being the customer. Got it. You know, I'm a customer in Midtown. I'm 24, 25, which is a really good age to have a sense of where um, things are and are, are going. Got it. And I, I just felt like me, all my friends, and I know like the people ordering that are older than me, the people that are going to come into the workforce that are younger, they're all going to want what we're specializing in. Got it. All we right. just have to execute. Got it. I think this is a good spot to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll come back and talk about what the early days were like. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot 
program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that helps you see your food and labor cost in real time so you can make informed decisions in the moment. Just snap a picture of your invoice and Margin Edge will process them within 24 to 48 hours with line item detail, including handwritten adjustments. This allows you to save hours on paperwork so you can spend more time on creating great guest experience. Margin Edge combines purchases from your invoices and sales data from your POS, which allows you to get real-time costing, get a daily controllable P&L, and send information directly into your accounting system. Margin Edge integrates with 60-plus POS systems and dozens of accounting systems. Manage everything from one central location, inventory, recipes, plate costs, ordering, and bill pay. Margin Edge was created by restaurant people for restaurant people. And as a matter of fact, Margin Edge founders continue to operate restaurants to this day. Head to MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable to sign up for a free demo today. That's MarginEdge.com slash unstoppable. All right. We are back. And in your story, um, you eight months have elapsed you from from concept to actually opening your doors, which is pretty impressive. If you ask me, um, what were the first what, what was the actual like first like rendition of just salad? Like what what did it look like? Was it a salad bar? Was it a counter? Like what was it? Um, it was Chipotle for salad. OK, that was kind of the um, our muse, so to speak. Got it. So you walk in and you say, like, well, like take us through the process. Is it like a base? Like, choose your green. Chipotle for salads with Jamba Juice colors. Okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It, it honestly, the format hasn't radically changed. Okay. So you'd you'd walk in and um, you could pick from different types of lettuce, pick from um, your toppings, and then you'd get your salad chopped at that point. Okay. So. Um, midway through construction at just salad, we had discovered that there was a place called chopped in union square and became enamored with these Metzaluna knives. And so we added that midway through, uh, construction, which in retrospect was a mistake, but, uh, at the time it looked really cool. Um, and, and we thought it was great. Um, so yeah, we, that was pretty much it. Why was it a mistake? Um, it creates a massive mess, the chopping and the product. Every time you put a knife to something fresh, it just gets less fresh. Okay. And, um, I think when we finally removed, uh, chopping in 2018, the product got significantly better. So that's 12 years in. Yeah, no, it took, it was, it was a long time. 
It was a long time, yeah. 2006 to 2018, you said? I mean, that's a whole other story, but there was basically a moment where I was like, I need to simplify everything. Mm. And we went back, got rid of the commissary, got rid of delivery guys, got rid of um, shopping. We'll come come to that. Okay, (laughs) We'll come to that. No, you're fine. I'm the one that's pulling back layers. Um, All right, so you're basically, so yeah, like it's kind of like choose your base and add your toppings as you go. And then you would chop it up and then put a cover on it and hand it over. But actually, something that we, we talked about from the very beginning from the, the your our con- conception, you wanted to do take out like your own bowls. We wanted a reusable bowl, and yeah. you did that from day one. Day one, w- like what was going through your mind? Take us through the idea of like you said you saw this waste. Yeah, you wanted to combat this issue with waste, but like was there more to it than that? Yeah, I mean, just very quick on the reusable bowl. Uh, before we open, I had this vision, and my. Um, one of my best friends from college, a guy named Viraj Piri, who ended up starting Gotham Greens, um, which is a hydroponic greenhouse for um, produce. I went to him and I said, I got this idea. What do you think? What do you think we should give the customer? And he, he basically came up with the idea of like, just give him a topping. Give him a topping and you'll, they'll come back. And he was... Not living a zero-waste lifestyle, but in 2006, he was very cognizant of waste, mm-hmm. more than even myself at that point. And so he was very helpful in um, creating the incentive plan. And then I had to make it. And so my godfather uh, was in the toy business, and I went to him and I said, hey, I have this vision. I want to have a reusable bowl that's colorful, that's both for marketing um, so someone knows that someone's eating out of a just salad salad, similar like what, you know, the Starbucks green straw right. that was in my mind. Right. I want to have a, a container that signifies that, that, um, that reduces or eliminates waste. He said, I got a guy, um, you could speak to, and all you need is to get a design done, an industrial design. So then I go on, uh, to Craigslist. I find an industrial designer in the flat iron area. I still don't remember this guy's name, but I'll never forget. I show up at his place. He's working a day job and he's like, come by at 8 p.m. Come by to his office at 8 p.m. Was, you know, I don't know whether it was like a big tech office. And we just sat there for an hour and he came up with the design. Took the design, went to the connection um, that my godfather, Sam Goldberg, had uh, hooked me up with. And I said to uh, him, can you introduce me to this guy? And it's this guy named Kevin Mack who spends, um, you know, most of his time in LA, he, he's flying in for another client. I meet with him. I show him this. And he says, this guy's like kind of just funny. He's like, yeah, I can make this happen. And I'm like, for, for real? Like you can just like have it come and show up. And he's like, yeah. I was, and got me a price. Um, got him a down payment. The shipment of bowls came the day before we opened. Wow. Yeah. We almost had to keep delaying opening uh, until they came. And then when it came, by the way, how many bowls did you order? I totally messed up. Um, it was, I don't remember the amount of bowls, but it was probably half a 40-foot container, and they brought it to the restaurant. Half a 40-foot container. More bowls than would fit in my entire restaurant had I only dedicated to the <laughs> storage of the bowls. How many spaces? A thousand? So I had to call our distributor at that point, which was uh, Imperial Dade, and I had to beg them to take shipment and I think they did because they felt bad. Oh man. So you had a forty foot like 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 basically a like truck. truck. 
Yeah, half a truck full of bulls. How yeah. many bulls is that? Approximately. I, I, oh man, you had to guess. Twenty-five to thirty thousand. Damn. And how much do these per? How much do these cost you per bull to produce? <sighs> Close to a dollar. So that's pretty good. I mean, and you're, you're charging. You're giving these away, right? So for the first in the beginning, yes, day one they were free. Yeah. So, but kind of some of the hot words you you dropped on us, or the the terms you're using, incentive plan. Like I like you knew from day one that you needed some type of incentive plan. I don't think people think like that. Like why? Like what was going through your mind? Like how was this idea of an incentive plan even in your head? My co-founder was like, no one's going to bring back these stupid things. <laughs> like, you know, like he, and he, he wasn't wrong by the way. Like it, 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 it we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, but he was like, I don't see it. And I was like, they will. We just have to give them a little reason to. And it's honestly just getting in the head of the consumer, right? Like people for lunch are very cost sensitive, um, especially in office areas. Cause it's a repeat purchase. So if you can, make people feel like they're getting a little bit of a deal it really does um it really does sway the way people act and so um yeah we gave a free topping um and that was the way i thought people could justify to themselves it was worth bringing back but he was right i mean when we open um I would say 90, 80 to 90% were being thrown out. And the reusable bowls only save carbon, save plastic if they get you reused. Reused at least once. <laughs> okay. After once, it's basically carbon neutral. Got and it. then every time after that, you're saving plastic, saving carbon. No different, by the way, than a reusable um, beverage container, right? Or reusable bags, which is a whole other story. Reusable bags, I tell my family, stop taking reusable bags. We have a million. You have to actually reuse them right. like 20 times for it to actually make wow. sense from a carbon perspective. So um, so we quickly adjusted like a week or two. I, I'd be lying if I, I don't remember. It was a week, two, month, or one or two months, somewhere in that range. I saw these things being thrown out all over the street on New York City. And it, it really did break my heart. And I was like, okay, we've, we've got to have a disposable option, but we're keeping the reusable option for those that care. Got it. So how long, how much time elapsed from the dis- reusable only to reusable and disposable if you don't? A- anywhere from two weeks to two months. So that was kind of one of my questions too. When people came in, if they didn't want to be, take p- part in the reusable program, like, and they didn't have a bowl, like, are you just like saying like, sorry, no salad for you or no you one just- was really, they weren't complaining. Everyone okay. was like, oh, this is great. I have this, this bowl. That's cool. But like they were, a lot of people were just like, but I'm not going to reuse it and I'm just throwing it out. Yeah. People think they didn't catch on to why it was more of like a, they- and if they knew why they still didn't care. Okay. And that's where we, when we went to the disposable option, um, we charged a dollar for the reusable ball because I wanted people to feel somewhat invested so they weren't throwing it out. Got it. Um, so uh, was there a period where the whole reusable thing started to kind of like take foothold and like, I mean, I guess like what are the biggest lessons from all this? If we're, li- if we're looking at just salad as inspiration, as like we could be making a better effort to reduce our carbon footprint and uh, like this is such a great idea. Like why not have our consumers just use the same bowl? Like such an easy solution. 
You got to incentivize. That's the lesson. Okay. Like I, I see, um, I see brands try it all the time. And unless you're giving away something for free, it doesn't, it's probably not going to work. I've seen, unless it, you make it so easy, um, which, you know, meal pal, um, which is like this third party, um, marketplace for, um, getting pickup meals. They, they've introduced a reusable, um, program and they make it mandatory. Right, so if you pick up your and we we work with them at Just Salad, if you pick up your crispy chicken poblano through meal palette Just Salad, uh, you'll get it in a reusable container, and when you come back to the restaurant, you can drop it off. Um, and so that it either has to be so accessible and so easy, or there has to be a real incentive. So the incentive you're charging a dollar, but the incentive that you would give your consumers was free topping, essentially free avocado, free. which is what most people okay. get. Got it. So they get one free topping yep. or a free avocado. Yeah. Do one free topping, including avocado. Including an avocado. Yeah. So two free toppings? No, no, no. Like one free topping, which also includes um, toppings like avocado. Oh, which or, is probably your most expensive, one of the more expensive. Yeah. It's it, it such you can get any free topping you want that we have at Just Salad other than an animal protein. Got it. Got it. Um, did When did that really start to like become very aligned with who just salad was like, like i feel like you hear the name just salad and people go oh the reusable bowl company i mean pretty early on people yeah. identified us with the reusable bowl um and i would say you know there was probably it it, it was always i think we were always identified from from day one but i do think as sustainability got more important um, to people, and I don't have facts on this, but you could just tell since COVID, right. people's mindset, and, and part of that's due to media coverage, and part of it's um, due to people's own personal connection with climate change. You can you can see people care now, and, and yeah, people yeah. reuse their bowl more I think now. there were a lot of documentaries watched during COVID-19. Yeah, man. <laughs> so, whatever it is. It's I, enlightening. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy it took – I'm, I'm yeah. happy people care more about right. Earth. <laughs> For sure. Especially – it was so frustrating. Like, maybe – like, overnight, everything went from, like, delivery and takeout only. So, like, this, like, like this carbon footprint kind of, like yeah. – people. I mean, I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm assuming the carbon footprint went up with COVID-19, even though people weren't necessarily traveling around as much. But like, at, at least with the consumer packaging, people it, it, weren't moving around as much, but car- carbon was moving around more. Yeah. I mean, the carbon footprint overall went down, but um, based on just automobile and right. airline use, energy use alone is is by far the biggest mover. Um, but for food and packaging, it probably was worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to the early days. I mean, I mean, if there's any piece of advice that we should know if we're interested in doing the packaging before we move on, like get that out now, like in terms of having like reusable packaging, like what are the things that you know now that you wish you knew then that has not come out from a reusable perspective? You need an incentive. Yeah. I mean, I would give them the option is another one. Yeah. Make it easy and give them an incentive would be, would be the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, any challenges that come along with that that are worth? Yeah, I mean, of? we we have to, we had to spend a lot of money on um on a mold, um, twenty five thousand dollars at least. Yeah, it was it was I think it was forty or fifty thousand. Oh wow! Um, so ten percent of all the money we raised. Right. Um, and there's supply chain logistics. Um, 
that are involved that are really difficult to make sure you maintain them. Right. Um, because re- there's no other packaging source that we really control supply chain on. Like our distributor actually makes sure we have enough of the forks we've identified or the napkins or the bags, uh, but reusables on us. Got it. Because they don't do that for other uh, customers. So that that it's a challenge. There's no doubt. But I think it's, um, for us, it's, it's totally been worth it from, um, like, I, I sleep at night knowing I've done um, as much as I, I can reasonably on the packaging side. I think it's been helpful for the brand. Um, and it ended up being a guiding light for the company as a whole. Right. You said up to like 90% of the packaging that you were giving out this re- that was meant to be reusable was being thrown away. Correct. Where is that today? Similar. Um, it went down to like 5% and it's back up to roughly 10. So, so there was, so basically 5% of in-store customers only got it. So of all the bowls that you give out about five to 10% are being reused. Yes, exactly. 10% today of our in-store customers reusable. Really? I'm surprised it's not more than that. It, it it varies wildly by store. Yeah. I mean, we have stores that are 20%. We have stores like, you know, we have a store in um, Woodbury Commons that's in a, a food court. Um, that's a, 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 a destination tourist place where, you know, it's, it's, it's less than 1% because you're on the, you're, you're on the go. You don't even, ex, you they don't might even, never come back. Yeah. And, and they, even if they do, they're not bringing their just salad bowl to um, a, a, an out, a, an outdoor shopping center in hopes of finding a just salad to reuse their bowl. Right. You have to go with the intent. Like I'm going to lunch but, at just salad. Today. Yeah. You have, but I feel like having that bowl would give you reason to become more loyal to well, the brand. Our, our customers that reuse our bowl are our most loyal customers. Yeah. Well, because it's not, there's a point at where psychographics comes in and people, they're just like, I want the world, I want this bowl to be hanging on the outside of my bag so everybody knows what my values are. So it's it's your virtue signaling is essentially what's going on. Like, not that that's a negative thing. It's, it's good to be proud of your virtues. Uh, But what's going through your mind, as I said? No, like it's, it's a lot, a big part of our, of what we think about is how do we get um, more people to reuse their bowl more often? where we are today. And so last year in February, we launched um, a promo that everything on the menu costs $8 and 99 cents. And typical menu price, depending on geography is anywhere from like 1199 to 1299. So it's a, it's a real discount and you could get 899 only if you re reused your bowl. Got it. And that reusable bowl usage went up to 20%. Okay. And then it dipped down slowly over the course of the year back to 10. So you think it's just consumer behavior? We're just so used to having things like taken care of for us that we just can't think to bring a bowl with us. Is it behavioral? Part of it. Look, I don't reuse my bowl 100% of the time because when I'm in the office, I reuse my bowl. It's easy. Um, But there are times where um, I've got a meeting uh, and I'm, we're based in Midtown, New York here. I, I've got a meeting downtown and um, I'm racing up and there's a just salad in, in, in our office building. And it's like, I skip out. Like I could take the extra 10 minutes to go up the elevator, grab my bowl, come back downstairs. But honestly, 
I just need food. I need it fast. And I want to eat it in this case. If I'm feeling like eating it just salad and I get the disposable packaging. Thankfully, I, I reuse my bowl more than not. But there are times it is not always possible. So that's where making sure your disposable packaging is um, is sustainability, sustainably um, uh, is sustainably good as possible is is important. Right. Got it. All right. We can stop talking about bulls. Okay. <laughs> it's not every day I get to talk to somebody who, who like launches these 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 initiatives, and I think it's really inspiring. Um, so, I mean, you're 17 years in at this point, right? Going yeah. 17 years. Um, you're almost or over 70 locations now. 75. Yeah. So what were the biggest like really get into like the 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 evolution of just salad? Like what were the biggest pivotal points? If you could like go along this this chronological vein, like what were the biggest evolutions for you? Um, and there were different stages to the business. So there was like this startup phase where we were one to five locations and we got a little lucky that um, when like 2008 happened and the financial market crash and rents went to shit in the city and we started signing great deals. Um, and so, you know, we kind of got to five great locations quickly and we what were is quickly from 2006 to 2000 to end of 2008. Got it. So two years, five locations. Do, along what you just did, that idea of like there was like the one to five phase, and then what, like what were the different phases thereafter without getting into any detail? Uh, yeah, I think there's a one to five, and then there's like the five to 20. Okay. And then there's like the 20 to 50. And I feel like we're now in the 50 to 150 type of thing. Got it. Uh, so... Okay, go back to the, the first five locations. You wanted no description around this. So I just gave it. No, that's exactly <laughs> okay. what I wanted. Okay. I, I was like, I'm, I'm like, I'm breaking, now going forward, I'm going to break yeah. this up into chunks okay. to okay. Like make the best of our time. So, um, so from 2006 to 2008, you went from one to five. What were the biggest like changes that had to happen to go from one to five? Like, like what were the things that you were learning along the way? The biggest aha moments? Or what was happening during that? I was just figuring out how to operate. Got it. Like that was by far. We weren't we were profitable from day one. Right? No, no, we had a line out the door. We weren't profitable. We weren't losing money. That's why this podcast exists. Yeah. My parents had a restaurant with a line out the door every weekend and they were struggling to pay the mortgage. Yeah, you know, it, like, it, it's um, well, that was our focus is how do we figure out with all this demand how to make money? And um, ultimately, a big focus became speed and throughput. Mm. Um and another focus became really understanding the business side. Where do we have to get our food costs to? Where do we have to get our labor costs to? Um, how do we control our controllables expense? Um, and so there was a lot of learning. And, you know, we paused after five stores because we needed to figure out how to make make these work you better. gotta slow down to speed up sometimes yeah you gotta uh and i, I think you could argue too i mean you, you i think you say after 08 you go from the 5 to 20 there's another period of having to like what's the organizational structure well that's that's yeah. that's the whole thing so after you for what we were doing i felt like we could muscle five with me and my co-founder um and we had a bookkeeper um and we had a 
um, chief information officer, <laughs> which is a long, it, it's, it's its own story. Um, and a CIO, a CIO, someone really smart who just wanted to be along for the ride, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but that was it. Right. So we then had to realize, okay, we need, um, people that know how to operate better than me. We need to hire someone in marketing. Um, Oh, we need someone in HR. This is getting real now. Like, you know, you start to create departments with, with literally single people. Um, we need someone in supply chain. Right. And it happens organically, at least in our case, it was never forced. You know, it was never like, well, when you just start, you just start to realize I, if, if, if I only had this exactly, yeah, if I only had this one person and wait a second, if I had one person supply chain, um, at this point who is making, um, I don't know, like 70 to 80,000 a year. Do I think they could save the company more than twice that? Yes. Um, so it's their investments. People right. are investments. And we started to make those, um, investments because as you get bigger, it's easier to have those investments pay off, right? You have one person in supply chain overseeing one store. Well, that's not going to pay for itself. No, <laughs> but it helps you scale because now there's one person who that's all they do. Sure, but it, we didn't have the benefit of having all this money in the bank to say, let's make this investment before it actually could pay off. So yeah, how do you make that? How do you close that that bridge? That, that going from not having the money in the bank to, to, to like having it and then... You know where I'm going with this? Like, how do you make that happen? How do you make things happen when you don't have the resources to make it happen? Yeah, it's still the same thing today. We have like um, one person in catering. If we had a second person, do we think we have the amount of territory and locations that that person can come on and generate X dollars of revenue, uh, produce Y EBITDA, and is that going to be a decent amount more than their cost? And the answer now is, you know, we're now in, um, we used to be so New York City and Chicago fo- focused. We now have 17 restaurants in Florida. We're in uh, Fairfield, all over Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut. Maybe we should have someone cover these outer markets ASAP so we can provide catering for these other markets. Um, and so it's a bet. Yeah. Um, and that kind of simple logic and rationale is, is used for a lot. So measure and track is that if that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But when you're making these bets, you got to like, you know, you're, you're taking a gamble, but then you're paying attention to the numbers to find out if that, if that investment is paying off. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, pretty quickly. Right. So from Oh six to Oh eight, you go from one to five locations. Um, that's pretty impressive. Um, and you said during that time, uh, you, you're, thinking about how do we make more money so you're thinking about speed and throughput so you're really just refining the systems and the processes in the few locations you have to get them ready to the point where they can scale like where you're squeezing as much juice out of this thing as possible yeah and and just um creating the systems too right and making it um also for our employees there was a realization of like in the first five it was like we were around we were training without trying to train yeah. Um, and there was an, uh, you know, an understanding. You're, yeah. Training through just like your osmosis. Presence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so it was like, now we have to create a training program and we have to have, um, uh, refine recruiting and hiring. Um, and, um, yeah. And then, you know, after five stores, it's creating a culture 
in the restaurant. Um, so a lot of it gets formalized, I guess you could say. What did you learn about throughput and how to increase throughput? I mean, I know it's specific to your concept. Uh, but. Yeah, no, I just I saw because I was way too focused for way too long on it uh, and to a detriment. Um, I became obsessed with seeing how many customers we could get through at lunch. And in the beginning, you know, there's this balance of throughput, right? Like, I really don't want to waste customers' time. I still get crazy when I um see in a restaurant people waiting for their pickup orders um or a line out the door and it not moving it's kind of a fuck you to the customer in a way like you're not investing in their time but then i went the other way too much and it was like we need to get them in and out in like three minutes and then you're just rushed right as a customer and um you don't have a good experience so you don't come back right and so it was trying to find that balance, which I think we found. It took me probably 12 years. <laughs> what was, you know? Well, what's unique about the balance that you found that works for you? Um, you never want to make the customer feel rushed. You just want to have enough employees so that you can naturally get the customer through the line um, in a quick way but they don't feel rushed. So what are you doing with your employees that differently or how did that evolve that employee element of things to, to make the, the customer not feel rushed? Figuring out, um, staffing more, right? So but does that increase your operational expense? It does, but finding that right, um, balance of when you add an employee, you're getting X customers more. You're increasing this much throughput yeah. during this window of time. And realizing that the difference, I'm just making this up, of doing 100 customers in an hour versus 115 is not worth it because um, those customers won't come back and they're not going to come to you earlier or later after the lunch rush because they don't enjoy the experience. So the difference of 15 customers you're saying isn't worth like get really unpackage that. So like the difference between hundred and 115 will be a bad experience. Is yeah. And I guess it? these are fictitious numbers, but yeah. Y- yeah, some, there is a point of, um, where the speed becomes too much. Um, a- and there's a point where you can only add so many customers, uh, excuse me, employees to an assembly line without, um, starting to bring down um, the operational like efficiency. Yeah. I mean, I know every concept is unique, but I'm curious. Like, Do you have like one employee stay with that guest through like the life yes. cycle of their meal? That was a change we made, though, 12 years in. Okay. So what it, was you, it before 12 years? The topper passed to the chopper. Well, actually, excuse me. The topper would... Pa- we had a lettuce packer who would hand it to a topper, who would hand it to an expediter, so who would expedite it to the chopping station, who would then send it to the customer who would then go to the cashier. Way too many steps. Way too many steps. But I was coming at it from a theoretical standpoint. Well, that's the assembly line. That's too. the assembly line. Right. And that's just not a great customer I mean, there experience. are benefits to that because now you can train you can you're just training the employee how to do one very simple thing and then as they the longer they're with you the more skills you can add on to that but to get them started you just put the salad in the bowl for now i think that works um if you're a pay first concept 
where you're not dealing with a physical person, but you're just dealing with product in the back of the house, you can create an assembly line that's extremely effective. But when you're dealing with a human being and an experience, it needs to be one-on-one all the way through, maybe with the exception of the cashier. Well, the other variable too is now you can, I feel like you can, you can staff for demand, right? So like now, like it's the lines longer, just add more people to get through the line faster. Yeah. And then, I mean, what, like, why did it take 12 years for you to figure this out, though? Um, Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're yeah. still at the 06 to 08 period. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, think, I think that um, my obsession with, like, operations and speed and efficiency became morphed into an obsession with product and um, experience. Quality. Yeah. And experience being a part of a quality. Yeah. Um, products. So, okay. So from 06 to 08, you go from one to five. Um, and the, that time spent on focusing on basically improving system, improving the, the customer experience, uh, figuring out that you need to put a training system in place and remove yourself from the day to day. Yeah. That was kind of what was happening during that point. What, so in 2008, do you make this declar- declaration that you're going to go from five to 20 locations in the next amount of years? No. Um, we started just growing from cash flow. So, um, I love that. Yeah, the five stores were producing a lot of money. And every time we'd get enough money to open a new store, we would. And that was happening pretty, pretty fast at that point. What percent margins were you doing? You don't have to share the, the, the gross, but I'm just curious. Like, what it was what probably for? for a long time, it was roughly 15. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, yeah, it, and thankfully it's gotten better over time, but for a long time it was 15%. So it's it's better than 15 now. Yeah. Closer to 20%. What about what you, what's your your answer for people who are listening to us and going like that's not possible to get those those well, we'll be publicly traded hopefully in the next year or two and it'll be audited for you to shove in your face if you say it's not but, possible. No. Yeah, but when yeah. you first started you weren't doing Oh, no. We like profit. I said we were probably like about 0 to 1%. So what margin. was the biggest thing that you did that helped you go from 0 to 1% to 15 20? There's no silver bullet, man. <laughs> there's no like there's well, a there's this um this business is is just it, it, it's almost like you have to have two brains. Right. Okay? One one part of you has to be laser fucking focused on every aspect of your business. Every aspect. I'm going to bid out the linen provider. I'm going to make sure I'm getting the best price on the garbage haulers. Um, uh, whatever that side of it is, right? Uh, supply chain's a huge aspect of it um, where we're like, take a very big Trader Joe's mentality. Um, and then there's this whole other side of like, okay, I'm going to be very business savvy. But then the other side is I need to do whatever I can to make sure we have the best product and make the customer happy. And you know, it's, it's, it's a, they're not counter to each other, you know? So you have to do both very well to be successful. And within both buckets, there's a million things going on there. Right. So what are the things that you're doing at just salad that are like just extreme, like are well done in terms of customer experience that, that you're exceptionally proud of? I, I do feel, um, we have an operational, excellence where like our our store of operational culture for our size i think is incredible 
And I, and the the biggest reason for that is your size being seventy units. Yeah, got it. Seventy five. Seventy five. It's hard to keep track. No, you're opening so much. Um, yeah, I, I think our, our our chief operating op uh, officer, our VP of operations, our operators in general, they all started either as line level employees, um, or general managers at that. best, and as they've moved up. They have a tremendous amount of care and loyalty and um, the relationship between myself and them is extremely non-adversarial, which I've had in the past with other operators. It's very um, like a family, you know, Um, and we work really hard on um, recruiting the right type of person, only hiring the right type of person training them really well and then putting them into a positive energy um, restaurant and um, keeping that positive energy through constant high level engagement from people on the corporate support team as well as um, our high level operators. And then there's this element too of like our employees will turn when they're being trained, they'll turn to the person training. What's this place really fucking about? You know, and and usually that person who's training was like, "Oh, this place is real deal." I I started at um, X dollars. I make Y now, and um, the general manager over there he started at the same place you you did, and now he makes eighty thousand a year. Yeah. So when you say you hire for the right person, what is that avatar? What are you looking for? What is the right person? Positive energy um, and um, people that you can tell want to work hard. And that's hard to fish out, but we kind of have a good way right. of doing that. But it sounds like you're giving people a reason to work hard because from what I can gather, reading between the lines, there's opportunity here. Well, we pay higher to begin with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're now, we're not far from a $20 minimum wage wow. now. Um, and we also, like, they know everyone who's above them started where they did. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, I mean, from a, an incentive perspective, financial-wise, it's pretty obvious. Right. So in terms of clear onboarding and, uh, like, is there, like, no, is there, like, a clear path of growth here? Like, when I get hired, do I know where I can be? Um, The growth is so intense right now that everyone, like, there is no necessarily, like, hey, here's a linear chart okay. of what it looks like. People are being plucked out of every restaurant. We we need a digital team leader. We need a supervisor. We need a kitchen team leader. We know, and um, there's constant communication um, between our operators in each store where and and people are continually being promoted. That everyone sees it. Yeah. Now that's not scalable past probably 150. Right. Everyone sees that now we're opening 25 restaurants a year. So. The opportunity is quite obvious for everyone, but I think at some point that will need to be much more formalized. Right. Uh, more of a track. Start yes. here and here are your, here are your But your we're choices. not there yet. And, I, yeah. and, and look, I've seen, uh, you know, there are restaurant chains, whether it's um, Chick-fil-A or Panda Express, that have operational excellence and they're over 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 units. And I don't know if they have a formalized track right. or if they just continually keep the culture and keep the pace of growth high, but at a reasonable amount. Got it. Got it. So in terms of growth, um, you, 
when you were going from five to 20, what were the next pain points for you? Because at this point, you're not in every location. It, it was trying to hire people on the corporate side yeah. to help make that happen. So a lot of that was we need one person handling construction. Um, we need w- one person handling um, layout schematic design. We need one person in marketing. We need one person in HR. We need one person supply. And it's finding those people um, and getting them up to speed, you know, in the five to 20 zone. That's a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, so building your organizational st- structure. Yep. Getting the right people on your bus, right? Yep. Um, and then what about operations? How did the how did the business change? Was like each unit essentially the same? Now you're just building the, the organizational structure around scaling that at, at that point um at that point it was the same yeah for the most part when did you how long did it take you to get to 20 locations if in, in 2008 you have probably locations. 20 tw- yeah 2014 2014 roughly. so um you went from five to 20 locations in an additional six years sounds right yeah um, and most of this time was built on building basically your house, your organizational corporate infrastructure yep. before you moved into it. Yeah. Um, if if that's what that six period year looked like, sorry, six year period looked like, um, then what was the following from twenty to say fifty, the next thirty? So then, um, at that point, we had been growing from cash flow. And in 2014, I wanted to bring on. Um, I love that. I always say, let cash flow and people determine your growth. I mean, if you want to own your own company, yeah. and you want to, um, you know, I've, I've seen great concepts and good operators fail because they brought in shitty investors, and most investors in the restaurant industry suck. What makes a shitty investor? Um. Usually ones when the time gets tough and there's always going to be tough times in the restaurant industry, they do the exact opposite. They pull back on spending, they pull back on innovating and they squeeze restaurants dry and the consumers bail because the product sucks and the experience sucks and it becomes a death spiral. So if you don't have investors, you don't have to worry about that. They don't have investors. Um, they have two things. One is hopefully they have enough cash flow to do it themselves that they get into tough times. And if they don't, they could bring an investor in at that time, which the investor at that point knows what they're getting themselves into. And they're putting money on the balance sheet for the purpose of fixing. In terms of putting money aside, what do you recommend for like, do you have like a, you know, like a get out of jail free account that's just building, accruing cash flow for tough times? Um, No, not yeah. really. I mean, you know, we, we do. I guess yes, because um, we have money aside at this point, but it's mostly for growth. Yeah. But I guess technically, if things were um, a struggle, we'd stop opening stores. And- right. So I have, like, I put 10% of every dollar I make, right? 10 cents in every dollar I make into a savings account, a profit mm-hmm. account, where I only spend that money on assets or like getting myself paying off debt, essentially. Um, is it, do you, do you have something like that where you're funneling cash flow to like, you know, it's a little weird because we have now, you know, obviously millions on the balance sheet and it's all earmarked for growth. Right. 
So it's a quick, again, and, and it's in and out. Well, it's in and out. It was also like it, we can quick, like in the middle of COVID, for example, I don't think the mindset of going into COVID was like, let's have money on the balance sheet for, um, a really bad, um, two year, you know, black swan (laughs) event. Right. But when it happened, it took less than a week to say, don't sign another fucking lease. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we need to cut back on, um, uh, on X, Y, Z and you go into a different zone. So you shifted those resources. Exactly. Yeah. Where do those, so, I mean, that's actually, before we move on to that shift, cause I'm guessing that. So from 2014 to when did you get to 50 locations? Oh, you're at, if you're at 20 in 2014, the next 30, probably not until uh, I'll work backwards. What is it? We're 2020. You're doing 23 and we opened, we'll open roughly 20 this year. Okay. So, um, I guess it was 20, probably so 2022, 2021, 20, 2022 is when you, you eclipsed, um, a hundred to 50. And, you said from 20 to 50. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. in 2022, you were at 50. 2022. So you've almost doubled. You've over. Oh, wait. You're at 75 now. Okay. So you went from 20 to 50 from 2014 to 2022. Eight years. Yep. Got it. Um, and I think there was a lot of no growth in in certain years there. Well, I, you started to answer a question I I asked. You were talking about finance where you go from being uh, cash flow, letting your own cash flow determine growth to, and then I think I cut you short. I think were you going to investors at this point? Yeah. So 2014, um, we took on, I wanted, at that point, I wanted help to grow. Why do you feel like you needed help? Because I had been growing in New York City, which I understood this market very well, Um, but I wanted to go to a new market. And I needed help on understanding how how do I um, how do I find architects and contractors and the garbage vendor? How do I do this all over again in other markets quickly? And I didn't really want to sell um, stock, so I had a unique situation where I basically wanted to find an investor that was willing to buy into just salad buy buying out angel investors and providing um, cheap, non-personal guaranteed debt. So you to have grow. investors, these people that invest in your organization, your angel investors. Yep. And then you went to other investors to say, pay off these angel investors and mm-hmm. then you will get their shares essentially. Correct. So basically at that point I wanted, I didn't want private equity. Um, and I, I just wanted, um, I wanted like a, a strategic investor. And so I, at that point, um, had read an article about Panda Express um, and had a lot of respect for their founders. Um, And I felt that I needed a partner, whether it was them, Panera, or Chipotle, to provide us um, guidance. Got it. And Panera and Chipotle were public, and there wasn't a lot of interest at that time. I didn't speak to them directly. That was what I was told. Yeah. And Panda Express basically got on a plane the next week, came to my office in New York, and um, we hit it off. You said that you had a lot of respect for Panda Express. What was it specifically? They were company-owned with well over a 1,000 units at that point, and they ran them really well from a business perspective, and um, they had a great operational culture. 
Got it. Um, so did you end up working with Panda Express? So yeah, they came in and they gave the original angel investors two to three X wow. their um, their original investment and original invest that was realized return. And original investors were able to keep paper return was much higher. They were able to keep um, uh, some of their stake in. Some sold zero. Some sold everything. But overall, um, they were able to basically um, buy out a majority of the angel investors. Got it. Um, and that was to get you to 50 locations. And this is 2016. Is that, is that what we said? 2014. Sorry, 2014 to 2022. And then it sounds like in like 2022, you kind of had like another shift. Is this when you went to become a B Corp? No, I mean, uh, yeah. So I, I would say... Yeah, I would say 2022 was another shift. Um, and I don't think it honestly has to do with being a B Corp. B Corp is kind of a result of the work that we've put in to um, making ourselves more institutional, um, kind of taking all the efforts that we've made from a sustainability um, perspective and um, being able to obtain the certification. Got it, got it. Um, but you I, did the work, you might as well be recognized. Yeah, that, yeah, it didn't. I mean, B Corp did change how we track what we do. Okay. And there was a lot of effort um, and really hard work by um, our former chief sustainability officer, Sandra Noonan, and our um, um, supply chain director, Alex Harden. They spearheaded that. Got it. Um, Got it. I think now is a good time to take our second break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about kind of where you are today, what it looks like, and where you're headed. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Technologies, Inc. RTI's total oil management automates your entire cooking oil process. With total oil management, you get dependable fresh bulk cooking oil delivery, filtration plus oil usage monitoring and reporting, easy oil disposal, used cooking oil pickup and recycling, and say goodbye to those messy, dangerous restaurant rendering tanks. Yuck. RTI's end-to-end cooking oil system helps you manage your used cooking oil disposal, storage, collection, and recycling conveniently, safely, and cleanly with no upfront cost. RTI's services are not limited to oil. They also provide insurance premiums and automated hood cleaning solutions plus hood filtration systems, making your hood cleaning process easy, automatic, and worry-free. In addition to all this, Restaurant Technologies, Inc. can help you reduce your carbon footprint, which we all know is becoming increasingly more important to the consumer. Restaurant Technologies, Inc. is always on so you don't have to be. To learn more, head to rti-inc.com and let them know Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast sent you their way. This episode made possible by Owner.com. Owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30% commission fees. Look. With Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. 
We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit Owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. We're back. And um, I really would like to spend the rest of the time talking about kind of where you are today and where you're headed. Uh, it's kind of like how like the wrap up each conversation. So and that on that note, we were talking about how you became a B Corp. And that was basically like you were doing all the work anyway. Like you're going through the motions to be sustainably minded and to be um, kind of like socially like minded, like to do the, the right social thing. So you're saying to yourself, if I'm doing all this stuff anyway, let's just track it and then get this, you know, to let's earn the benefit of being labeled a B Corp. Yep. Essentially. What is the benefit of being a B Corp? Um, you pay a certification fee every year. No, I'm kidding. No, um, well, this is kind of where I'm going with it. <laughs> no, no. I think, um, honestly, the biggest benefit for us as a restaurant chain is it provides really good guardrails for our corporate team of how we should think about certain things and be focused on them. For example, um, we recently switched from conventional chickpeas to um, organic chickpeas um, that are are grown through regenerative agriculture. Part of that decision is we that scores us a couple more points on B Corp. And like, yeah, at first glance, it's like an annoying way to make a decision. But as we get bigger, um, I really want, I really care about sustainability, really care about diversity. So as I start to think about potentially this company 10 years down the line without me necessarily even being here. Um, I want those guardrails to remain on and keeps you honest, keeps you honest. It really keeps you honest. Yeah. It forces a process for tracking your effort. And I think for consumer package companies, um, it provides a sales boost from what I'm told. I think for restaurants less so. Right. I mean, I haven't really seen, I can't attribute any sales boost to it. So you, you didn't listen to my interview that I did with uh, Adriel Labarsky. Uh, and you didn't listen to the interview that I did with Stephen um, uh, Psalm. Or sorry. Yeah, Stephen Psalm. Um, yeah. So I mentioned in that interview when, when uh, Adriel first mentioned uh, Just Salad, I'm like, what's the deal with this whole B Corp thing? I'm like, here's – so I, I see the benefit of it. But my initial – like why I'm like, what – like. I think that if you open a business, you have a a moral obligation to do the right thing. <laughs> you know sure. what I'm saying? Like, but not everybody does. They're a rating agency to tell you who's doing the right thing and, and who's not, so, essentially. Right. So it's like, but that's the thing. Like, you could open a business, say you're doing the right thing, but at the end of the day, like, what's really happening behind the scenes? And, like, how do you... Oh, yeah. I mean, look, it's. I'm sure there are B Corp companies that... Um, maybe aren't perfect, right? right? But um, I do think directionally, I would say if you're B Corp, knowing how stringent the process is, and it is intense, um, you're, 
your overall direction a very good company and right. you're doing a lot of good things. I guess one part of my concern is if 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 you have this whole sector of business that is focused on like, oh, if you're over here, that means that you're a good business and you're doing good things. Is that an excuse to not be a good business and choose to take the path of least resistance and cut corners for the sole sake of profitability? And I think that's what you're, you're, you're kind of giving people permission to, to operate in that, that realm of just sole pure profitability as your, you know, like, but they say that's what capitalism is, is it's about returning money for your stakeholders. But that's also just somebody who said that this is the sole purpose of capitalism is to return money for stakeholders. You know, like that's just a, somebody's take on it. Sure. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I, I have three kids, so it's right. like, I have a, I have a, a soul as I look past, um, you know, one year of, of profit. Um, and I also think the consumer is so sophisticated now that you can't really play games with them. Um, so I, I think you have to, I think as a consumer facing brand, yeah, you have to care more about profitability and you have to care a lot about your customer. Right. In the, the bigger picture. Right of the the efforts you're making to go beyond just the the interaction. Well, for basis. us, a large portion of our customers care right. about the environment. They care um, about diversity. They care about um, things more than profitability. So, by virtue of caring about our customer, we're going to care about those right. things. Right. I mean, obviously, I think B Corps are doing good work, and that we should be inspired by B Corps. Yeah. And I'm not like against B Corps. No, I. Like, these I are all. Want- <laughs> these are all. Fa- I, I. I. Look, I think. I think it's good to um, be cynical about most things. Well, you, um, yeah. So I don't have. I, I I hear your your points, but I am proud to be a B Corp. But I guess I mean you should be proud. Yeah. Obviously, I mean I don't want to take that away from you, but I do want it for like the bigger picture. Is it is is are the the hoops you have to jump through, or the you said that there's a fee you have to pay? Yeah. Is that annual? Yeah. Is that out of reach for a lot of small businesses that want to be identified as a, a organization taking the steps? But they, no, I mean it depends. It's based on it's a percentage of revenue. Is there an organization profiting from this whole thing of being like, oh, like you have to come through us to be considered a sustainable pretty, organization? That would, that would be ironic, right? Right. I, I, this I, is I'm kind of why sure B Corp is a um, nonprofit. Okay. Um, I don't know a lot. I'm not, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I don't want to project. And like there's a lot of. This. By the way, like. But these are my my initial like gut like knee jerk reactions. But B Corp right now is probably higher. It's it's pretty popular, so they have to hire. They need a lot of um, human power to certify people. Right. So it it actually there are a lot of people that have to work for. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I get okay. It. I'm just playing devil's advocate right now. Um, and I think it is great work that you're doing. For the record, I want people to know that I, I do admire the fact that you're going through these motions to to be recognized. As yeah, well. and I think your point is you appreciate the work not because we're B Corp and someone else said we're doing it. Like good- you said, you're doing it before you ever got the label. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did I cut you short? No. no. Okay. <laughs> so where is Just Salad today? Paint the picture. You're 75 locations. You're in Chicago, Florida, New York, Long Island, uh, Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, I think more than geographically, um, where we are today is we've never been in a better place in terms of like our product. Mm-hmm. I've never been prouder of the product we're serving um, from a culinary and craveability perspective. And um, I think from an operational perspective, we're, we've got an amazing team I just like really love working with. And we're very, um, 
we're very uh, together and kind of trying to crush it every day. Um, and we've got a great corporate team that's pushing me to grow. You so know, what is it about your team that's different today that was that's better? Like, why are you so much stronger today? What's changed? I think it just took time to put the right people together. Um, and I think the corporate team and ops team have come together at the same time. And I think um, I have improved a lot after making a lot of mistakes and misfocusing. And so I think by going all in on having um, the best product, the best um, culinary um, game we can offer, I think that's really helped drive um, a lot of momentum on the customer side and the same store sales side for the last couple of years. And that's created a lot of positive energy for our operators. Our operators are, are kind of winning every day. Our corporate team, people see that we're winning. So we're attracting talent yeah. um, that maybe we could not have so prior. So operators, are you franchised at this point? No. Um, we, we're we 99% company on. Got it. So when you, you these are your operating partners. These are yeah, I call them operate. They're, they're our operations team. Got it. So, like, ma- general manager, AGM, or regional manager. Yeah, I mean, like, we what start, are the job titles associated uh, with the prop? Starts at the top with um, Apo Chavez, who's our chief operating officer. Then our VP of operations, um, uh, Lynette. And then our we have, under uh, her, we have a ton of district managers, which we call area team leaders. They oversee anywhere from um, five to ten restaurants. And then we have our restaurant team leaders, which others call general managers. Um, and then under um, restaurant team leaders, we have several different positions within the restaurant. Got it. Um, and as you started talking through that, I couldn't take notes because I lost internet connection. <laughs> all, all good. <laughs> so I, I can, don't have it yeah, memorized. Yeah. But like, in terms of like organizational structure, like why this approach? Like, what do we like? If we're like, how do we recreate what you've created? And what's key to the approach that you took, I guess, is what I, I really want to know. I mean, ownership of um, the restaurant is like critical. So when um, everyone, I have ownership of the company, the brand. When there's an issue, I feel it. I, I still read every single Google and Yelp review at Just Salad today uh, for several different reasons. When there's like a negative review or negative experience, I feel that the chief operating officer feels that. They go to the district manager, or what we call area team leader. They have complete ownership of these five to 10 restaurants. They get to decide who they put into that role to lead that restaurant. Um, they, they're the person deciding, hiring, and firing. And then that VP of operations owns who they put in the position to oversee those five to 10 restaurants. And the chief operating officer, he does a good job of pretty much owning everything. Um, and so there's a lot of ownership to this. Yeah. But it sounds like what, what changed the most and feel free to correct me is that you gave these operating partners something to be proud of by in, not that they didn't have something to be proud of before, but you really focused on the quality of the product to be best in class. So now that they're, that they're, there seems to be this increased sense of pride in the work they're doing. Is that, am I reading between the lines? Is that what you're communicating? I mean, or? I don't think, I think the product um, improving. How did it improve? We got rid of um, a commissary 
in 2018. Got it. And That's we, when you said you kind of shifted your perspective. We simplified. We got rid of chopping. We got rid of the commissary. And we brought all um, all our cooking is now in-house, fresh multiple times per day. So, for example, um, there's nothing on the produce side that's brought in pre-cut. It's all prepped multiple times per day fresh. On the dressings, we went away in the mid-2015 away from um, bottled dressing, and we make it fresh, house-made, every restaurant. And then on the protein side, we're now, as of twenty um, late 2020, we're marinating all the proteins um, in-house overnight and cooking fresh multiple times per day. Originally, why did you think commissary was the way to go? I didn't think we could handle cooking in 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 the restaurants themselves as in just like i thought it was too complex yeah but by getting rid of um by getting rid of delivery guys by getting rid of chopping um by you know we and and in some sense getting rid of the commissary the commissary became way more complicated than and caused more costs and time than it was saving yeah so um by simplifying operations, we could then put more onto operations in the back of the house. Got it. So when you made this shift in 2018 to bring everything in-house from scratch, um, what were your challenges? Um, we did it. I mean, I think first the first challenges was getting enough electric and um, investing in these really um, expensive double-decker convection ovens. Um, and then once we figured out the physical part, it was just training. Got it. But I think, um, that actually ended up being great because everyone, um, really gravitated towards it and was like, yeah. So like, how did bring this in house change the culture? Like what was going on internally? I think it's ironic because we started almost as a fast food company and evolved into a, an amazing restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's usually you the opposite. Went, I was going to say, yeah. you went the opposite direction. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, but what, what, what do you think is happening internally when people have their hands on things? Like, is there a different level of pride associated with the work? I, I, think, I think there is, yeah. yeah. I really do. And I think, I think people enjoy and love the product and they want our customers yeah. to love the product. Yeah. We do have five minutes left. I do want to talk a little bit about technology because I'm curious because you talked a lot about throughput. Or not a lot, but you mentioned throughput earlier as being something that was kind of like an aha for you. Yeah. It's about – and I'm, I'm curious. Did you – at post 2020, I don't want to talk about 2020, but did your sure, organization good. shift in a way to focus more on the digital consumer in terms of throughput and being able to basically reach as many people as possible? We were very well positioned for the digital transformation right. that took place. Like I said, I got into this business as a seamless web customer, right? right? So I had always been, um, for the most part, pretty, tho- pretty um, pro third parties. So like, um, you know, we... You're calling our architects out of the, you know, you know, you can't do it all by yourself. Right. So we work well with Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grub, um, and we we want to execute those orders as best as possible. So the physical layout of just salad um, since, you know, 2018, 2019 involved a whole digital station for um, pickup and delivery. We had a digital team leader. 
Um, all that happened was kind of we shifted more resources from in-store employees to digital. Um, but I would say the biggest thing is like we were a little late. Like in 2021, we in 2020, we realized we needed our app and our website to be better. It wasn't good enough anymore to have your own app and website. It actually needs to be really good. Right. And so in 2020, late 2021, um, we released a brand new app which I'm really proud of. Um, How does a restaurant develop an app? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> that they can be proud of. Yeah. we we So we had um, someone in-house that um, had some experience. We hired a product manager, right, which is like what a tech company does to run um, a product. Right. And product being the app. Pro- product being the app in our case. And... We went out and we worked with outsourced engineers, which we still work with outsourced. Where do you even start to find outsourced engineers to build an app for a restaurant? Uh, the internet's a crazy place, man. Yeah, you can find <laughs> yeah. anything. No. I feel like it's a very unique, um, I don't know, it's a, a restaurant Oh, God, app. you should see my LinkedIn. Uh, but like, is there like a, like a company that you can speak to that you went to that develops apps that you would say, hey, like if you need a solution, check out this company. They were great for us. I... Um, yeah, I mean, we used we used a company called Bears Dev, okay. um, which is, um, God, I think they're based out of Argentina, um, and they they do really good work. I believe they've worked for like Shake Shack and other restaurant brands, um, but like everything else, it's like a you know it's an entrepreneurial journey. You start there. I don't think we currently work with Bears Dev, and you kind of see how you can get better and more efficient. Um, and eventually we brought in, um, two in-house engineers, um, and, um, we converted our web and look, we could have gone to an agency and we could have done it for more money. Um, but there were certain things we felt that we needed an agency for, and there were certain things we didn't. Um, I think from a wireframe and design perspective, we needed, we needed to outsource that. But from an engineering perspective, we thought we could do it in-house and, I couldn't be more proud of the app. Um, and then the web followed about a year and a half later. Got it. Um, so what haven't we spoke about? We're actually at time. I got to think about, I want to respect your time. It goes by so fast, man. You're yeah. right. Once you get going, it goes We're by trying fast. to fit 17 years. Into <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, my show used to be less than an hour and I was like, I yeah. can't do this any longer. I'm just going to go for a long format and uh, make the most of it. So um, what haven't we discussed? Anything that, that wasn't mentioned before I start to ask you the closing questions? Uh, I think you, I mean, I don't know. I, it's, it's a it, lot to cover. It's a lot to cover. Yeah. I, uh, no, I mean, I think, I think in terms of where we're going, I guess, you know, yeah. that's the next chapter. So hopefully I'm on your show in a couple of years. I'd love to make that and, happen. Um, you, you know, I'm going to fuck yeah. up. <laughs> Give me a couple of years. Yeah. It'll be boring if, if we don't let two or three years exactly. go by. Um, well, I mean, I would love to have a follow-up interview. Um, before we say goodbye, I do want to ask you just a couple more questions. Uh, if, if, if I were to walk into a just salad today and I could record something, a way you do something, a way, yeah. something that's just something you're especially proud of that makes just salad unstoppable. What is that thing that we can like visualize and recreate in our own businesses starting today? I mean, I'll just tell you my favorite favorite things that reviews that I read are like, um, just salad makes it look so easy. Um, but serving fresh, healthy, um, craveable food with at our quality, um, but making it seem so easy and 
are, um, you know, I think that's the special sauce at a price point that is um, reasonable. Um, and then layer on the connection that a lot of our teammates in our store really actually have yeah. with our customers. I think that whole combination um, of fresh, healthy, fast, craveable, it's like, um, you know, it, it's simple, but yeah. it's really hard yeah, to execute. For sure. Um, I've loved today's conversation, man. Um, we wrap up every chat by having my guests. Actually, I almost forgot to ask you one of the, my favorite, favorite questions. And this is a doozy. So keep your ears open. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy. What would those three nuggets be? I know it's a tough one. You're like, you're kind of wishing you, you saw those questions now, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one as easy as I think, um, uh, reduce your impact as much as possible on earth. Um, I would say another is make sure your restaurant employees truly have fun and care to connect with the guests too. Cause I think that's important to, to community. Um, and three, um, I, I think you got to make sure your food is special mm. and people fucking love it. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. I've loved today's conversation. And now is where we say, um, if we were listening to this and um, I'm like, I'm doing a whole new format right now. I'm going based off memory. So I'm kind of all over the place. I did. I need to have you call somebody out. So um, who do you respect? That's how I found you. Yeah. Uh, Steven Salm called you out. Adriel Labarski mentioned you during the interview. Thank you to both of them. Yes. Uh, who do you respect and admire? And if you found out it was a guest on the show sharing their knowledge, their story, their secrets, you would absolutely. In the restaurant know. world. In the restaurant world. We are restaurants. Um, I feel like, um, you know, Andrew and Peggy Churn are. Um, they might not be, they're multi-billionaires now, so it might not be easy to get them, but they, they are, I mean, they've grown an empire and they've um, done it without private equity or any, I mean, they've, they own a hundred percent of the company. I don't even know who the Angie and Peggy Churn. Uh, Andrew. Oh, sorry. Um, and Peggy Churn. C-H-E-R-N-G. Sure. So, and what do they own? Uh, Panda Express. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, if only I knew somebody who knew them. Just put a little yeah. on everybody. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Awesome. I would love to get them on. Uh, Andrew and Peggy, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you guys on to share your story. And um, how can we connect with you? If we listen to today's episode and we're like, I want to, or maybe we want to connect with your organization. Maybe we want to come join your team. You're growing fast. What's the best way to connect? Um, it, I would say comments uh, at justsalad.com or HR at justsalad.com. You are growing like crazy. It's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you is how you guys choose where to go. Like what markets are you paying attention to right now? It's it's a whole other show, but we'll uh, save that for two more years, I guess. Yeah. Um, I would love to have you back on the show. And uh, this is episode 1034. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash one zero three four. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to tools or services uh, recommended and how to connect with just salad over there in the show notes and Nick, man, thank you so much. No, thank you for, this was great. I appreciate oh, it. Oh man. Yeah. I can't do what I do without people like you being so generous with your time and your knowledge. So you make this possible and there is no questioning my dude. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Love it. Cheers. 
There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Nick Kenner, for coming on the show. Short notice and being a guest. And um, this is the direction I'm trying to take the show. And it's it's so exciting to know that people are willing to talk. And if I put it out there, uh, you know, the universe will provide. And this is great. So I actually, uh, if you notice that we were light two episodes over the past week, uh, that's because we were light two episodes over the past week, and I could have scrambled to try to just record content for the sake of recording content, but honestly, I felt like I needed to kind of slow down uh, to readjust and to kind of reflect after being on the road for three weeks. I needed some personal time to figure out, you know, you got you to gotta slow down and speed up. And this is one of the biggest lessons I've been learning is um, I need to be less reactive and more proactive, and I'm not going to settle. I, I'm only going to go after interviews that I really, truly think my listeners can benefit from. So um, our goal is going to be two episodes a week. If we only do one episode a week or maybe go a week without publishing, um, so we're making sure we're putting the right stuff out there, then that's going to be what happens. So I just want to be fully transparent about that. Um, We are still trying to get an RV. Um, Where I'm at in that journey is just trying to get my financing in a place where I'm getting a good deal and I'm not just rushing into a situation. Uh, And if I need to do the Airbnb thing and live on the road... um, I'll do that to bring you this journalistic approach of content. I'm really letting the stories lead me to the next stories. And uh, I'm super excited and psyched for where we're headed with Restaurant Unstoppable. It's going to be some good stuff. So um, part of the reason why I'm slowing down is because we're really uh, trying to you know, be better with bringing people together at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Uh, Callan Miola uh, just had her second baby. Congratulations, Callan. She's on maternity leave right now, and she'll be back in early November, and we're going to hit it hard, and I cannot wait uh, to to bring back some of the more live events and really be intentional with who we're trying to connect you with at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Um, the future is bright, and I can't wait to go there with you guys. You're in for a treat, and I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi with Sumadre Podcast for your copyright and editing. Thank you, Callan Miola, for your work as our community manager. So excited to grow that part of this business with you. And thank you to Anna Tazen with Good Kind Consulting for your executive support and counsel. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.